Happy Valentine's Day, day we celebrate romantic love, love. And uh, it is a day I've been praying specifically for everyone who is to come today, just that we would fall in love with Jesus. So we're going to start with this. We want to make sure we have the right Jesus, not something we're just kind of making up. It kind of looks like a surfer or whatever. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. Once you get those Bibles, open them up, please, to Matthew chapter 10. I expect to have a lot of fun today, by the way. We're going to be taking a look at the calling of the twelve. And uh, that is important in a lot of ways. But I want to take it from this. And that is we're going to look at them a little bit by their personalities today. And the real question is, once we're done, is which one do you think you would be? If Jesus were to call twelve here, which uh, of these would you say, okay, if, if you were to play the role and it would be a natural role for you. Which one of these 12 would you be? Now, prayerfully, none of you would say Judas Iscariot, because that's just that just doesn't seem right. So, although I think there's probably a little bit of Judas in each of us, that's what the Lord slays. So, go ahead, Matthew chapter 10, first verse. And I want to jump right in. When he called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Then the names of the twelve apostles were these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Labaios, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, did you notice, by the way, as we get ready to um, jump into prayer, that they're paired up. It's this guy and this guy. And then there was this guy and this guy. So we have six couplets, if you will, uh, to take a look at today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's see what the Lord has for us today. Lord, I thank you so much for this time. Lord, I pray that every moment of it would, be go- would go by perfectly. That in depth and in length, captivate us in your word, Lord, so that every one of us today, from beginning to end, would just be enthralled with you. The way that you intend. Lord, keep away every distraction. Keep us from being distracted or distractors. And Lord, in that I pray that even right now, <laughs> you would be opening our hearts, God, to the move of your Holy Spirit in us. And Lord, that today would be profound, profound in you. So Lord, let your word burst open and come alive. And may every one of us today fall in love with you like you intend for us to, even as you are in love with us. So Lord, have your way now, I pray. We commit this, Lord. Immerse me in your spirit. Lord, come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And Lord, let today be the day now. Well, we are transformed in you. Lord, don't let us freeze in here. Lord, warm us up, I pray, and make this time so perfect. May we have so much fun in your word. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us personally as well as corporately. And God, in that today, that we would see ourselves in the text the way you intend. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any day, please don't just believe me. Don't assume it's true just because I say so. The Bible is there for you to hold all things accountable, and that includes me. And you could bet if I'm going to say that about me, I'm certainly going to say that about what you see on the news and what you hear from some other guy with a tie on and a lame coat somewhere. On, you know, you get it. They pulled up in his 
Ms. Bentley. Now, with all of that said, it tells us, by the way, there's a transition between verses 1 and 2, but it started in the last chapter when Jesus looks at the multitudes with the eyes of compassion and says, the harvest really is plentiful. Now, this is God's appraisal. This isn't man's, and this is the difference between man and God, is that we, it tells us in 1 Samuel, we look at the outside. So I can look, and we have to take outside traces to get ideas. And there's certain things we can see for somebody that appears to be ripe with God. There seems to be some form of interest. There's, you know, there's sort of a leaning forward and there's a drawing in and there's certain things that they develop appetites for. And you kind of go, the problem is, if you had a choir and she was, you know, in the alto section was fine, there's going to be a lot of guys getting saved all of a sudden from the outside. But the moment that you look at it from the inside, and only God can see that, He can see where hearts are really ripe. But he does it through an eye of compassion. We don't read that Jesus was moved with justice or that Jesus was moved with anger. Jesus was moved with compassion, which means his heart was breaking as he looked. When God looked at these people, we would not have seen it, but we wouldn't have seen the hope in the demoniac on the other side of the lake that Jesus went and made a house call for. We wouldn't have seen the cleanliness or the purity That was in the leper that Jesus was going to restore or the life in Lazarus. We wouldn't have seen those things. So praise God, he's the one doing the looking. And as he is doing that looking, he turns to his disciples. Now, and I remind you, disciple means student. And he looks and he says, now, look it. Here's my appraisal. People are really ripe. The problem is not the harvest. The problem is the harvesters. There's just not enough out there. Not enough people to go out there and really reach out to these people. So would you pray with me, is what Jesus says. Pray with me. Pray that to the Lord of the harvest, by the way, that's him, <coughs> that the Lord would send harvesters out into the field. Imagine, you look out and you've planted the trees, you've done all of the work, you've cultivated, you've fertilized, you've irrigated, you've done everything, and you look out and you see in the orchard, man, those trees are full and they're ripe and you're like but i can't do all this myself and well god could but out of love for us he gives us the joy of being part of it and so he says would you pray with me then pray that the lord of the harvest would send harvesters and so we pray unaware of the fact that when we're praying what we're really doing is volunteering you're aware of that right This becomes the problem in our prayer life is when we tend to think somehow that what we're telling God is to fix the problem instead of volunteering to be a part of the solution. So they pray to the Lord of the harvest. And as they pray to the Lord of the harvest, Jesus says, well, then let let me send you. And you could see us going, "Uh, whoa, what do you mean? We prayed for harvesters. And Jesus says, yep, you did. So you qualify. You think, uh... And that's what we get in our text. And that's why we're not going very far. Notice in verse 1, it says disciple. In verse 2, it says apostle. It'll be the first time the word apostle is mentioned, by the way, at all. Apostolos, apo meaning out of, stelas means to send. It means to be sent out. It is important to recognize Paul will call himself an apostle in several of his own epistles. Epistle, by the way, epistelas, sent out. Upon, it's a letter, you're reading someone's mail. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, is called an apostle. He was sent out. So there aren't just 12. Barnabas will be called an apostle sent out. What are they? 
Do we need them? Sure we do. What we're going to see here is they were sent out to proclaim a message to a group that would otherwise not hear it. Now, with that in mind, notice, though, in verse 1 again, it is disciples, though. So let me walk you through a pattern here, if you will, a trajectory that you're on whether you know it or not. It starts with this. We're all sinners. We start with being sinners. As if it were occupation, full-time occupation, sinner. You know what you do? You sin. Guess what the paycheck is? It tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now, does that mean if you stop sinning, you would not die? Please understand, God equates death with a separation. It's always a separation. Faith without works. It's dead. That's what he says. He says the body without the spirit, physically dead. And he says the, thing, the two things that have to come together have to be together for life to happen. And God made it that way, even if you'll pardon me for saying, even when it comes to having children, it takes two parties to be involved. Two things have to unite for life to come to, come to be. And when that same way, two things are required for life to, to, to continue. And in the same way, God said when he spoke to Adam, on the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. But he doesn't physically cease to exist. But on that day, he loses the intimacy that he had before that point. With him. And see, that's why we hate death. And this is, by the way, I'm going to go straight at the throat of something just to make us all uncomfortable. Evolution. One of the biggest problems I have with evolution is that death is a good thing for evolution. Because if something dies, something better rises in its place. It's the whole concept of survival of the fittest. But if we look at it from the perspective of a God who created things, death's a bad thing. Nobody that we love, are we happy that we died other than perhaps the perspective that we know they're going to be with the Lord, but we still feel the separation. That's why it hurts. Because someone that we were close to, we lose that, we, we've now severed that intimacy. And that is a death in us. And that's what God sees with every person who doesn't have a relationship with Him. It's death. So when He says the wages of sin is death, You're going to physically cash in that body one way or the other, but you need to recognize you are not the body you're in. That's just your tent. If you got in a car, you're not the car. You're the driver. The car is just a casing. In this building, you are not this church building. You are in this church building. And in the same way, you you are inside this, well, not my body. You're inside your own. Good thing, because although there's a lot of room in mine, there isn't in yours. Now, now consider the fact that somewhere in this, this body's going to be cashed in, but there's something inside here that's going to live beyond that. And that's who you really are, the part we might ignore for the other. And he tells us we start out as people separate from him. We are spiritually stillborn. We may be physically breathing. Our hearts may be pumping. There may be blood flowing through our veins. Our brains may be functioning. Some of us more or less than others. But in the end of it all, somewhere in all of this, there is a physical existence and there's a spiritual connection that is missing too. You rip out your brain and you rip out your heart, the rest of your body can't function physically. Now, I'm not suggesting you try, but this is one of those areas I might just say, trust me. Spiritually, there is a requirement and this is why we live our lives so desperate. Because until those two things happen... There is no spiritual life. 
It would be like a body that was meant to function, but it's missing a heart and a brain. There are parts of it that, are, that have the ability to do things, but they can't until those two things are there and functioning. In the same way, spiritually, there is a part of you that is sitting latent, waiting for that connection. And I, if I walked you up here, and I won't, but I have more pedals up here at the moment. It's like tap dancers use their feet less than I do these days for my guitar pedals. I have them for the keyboards on one side, I have them for the guitar on another, and then I have another pedal that changes the pages on my iPads. Really cool, by the way, so that I can actually sing the right lyrics, which is always a benefit for you. And all of that, so I'm kind of doing this the whole time. But see, those pedals require power. And though everything is built and everything is fine, it can't function without power in it. And until then, it's dead. If you've ever had something where the battery dies, the battery dies. And all of a sudden the thing is dead because the source of, if you will, of the energy and the source of life in it has now been removed. If I were to remove any power from it, I could step on those pedals. It's going to make no difference. And in the same way, inside you, there is a, who you really are. You, are. you are designed for a life and not just existence. This physical body exists, but the spiritual part of you should be alive. And that's what God wants. And we start off spiritually dead, but God knows that. And that what's caused that is the guilt we've incurred through our own selfish desires. And so God, knowing that, chose to step in our place and say, I'll pay that price. When Jesus died at the cross, it was so much more than just physically dying. He had to sever his relationship from the Father. And I can't even imagine the pain Jesus would have experienced for that. Oh, that I would suffer more in my relationship with God in regards to if I were ever separate in that sense more than the physical pain Jesus suffered. And I look at that and I realize, look, at we start out as sinners. Here's the good news. The Bible says that though the wages, though, though everyone has sinned and though the wages of sin is death, that God so loved us, he sent his son to die on the cross to pay that death so that if we were willing, to, if we were willing to believe in him, we wouldn't perish. We wouldn't have to spend eternity away from the God who created us to be. We would never have to spend eternity dead. We would actually have eternal life. And that's the term he tells us. So we go from sinner to saved. Because it says, if you're willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You won't just be sane or better. You'll be saved, rescued from what? From that death. We go from sinner to saved. Now, I want to warn you, if you've never said yes to Jesus. And I'm not saying you've never been to church or you've never gone and done a catechism or whatever. There was a choice to be made. Over 26 years ago, I dropped the knee to this woman and said, will you be mine? She had a choice to make. She could run around and call herself Mrs. Holiday because she might have liked the name. But unless she said yes, she would have been delusional. And in the same way, you've got a choice to make because this is a love that God is offering, not just a contract. It is a covenant. And that demands relationship. So we go from sinner to save. The problem is, most of us, if we don't really get into the word, we'll think that's it. We'll think you're one or the other. And it's not a trajectory. It's just a, basically a movement from one or the other. The problem is, it's not. The same way, imagine, 26 years ago, Suzanne says yes. All right, here we are. And then we like never move in. and We never have a relationship or any of that. But we did our, we stood at the altar and said, I do. Well, you kind of go, well, well where is she? 
Oh, well, you know, what, is there some form of relationship you have now? Is there something better for that marriage? Or did you just do it to stay in the country or something? I mean, think about what that looks like. And we can do that. We kind of go, okay, what I really, imagine if I was like, Suzanne, I'm just marrying you because really I just don't want to go to hell. Or I just don't want to be single. For some of you that are single, you kind of think it's the same thing. It really isn't. No, no. So imagine if that was it. It wasn't like, you know, you're really the woman for me. I don't want to spend my life with you. But really, it's just kind of, I just don't want to be single. And it'll work better on my taxes. And, you know, I just kind of want to wear a ring because I think that would be cool. So say yes. Now, what girl in her right mind would go, oh, wow, you silver tongue. Woo. Yes, of course. But we can do that with God. Oh, I want to say yes to Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. How ripped off is God? So listen, we go from sinner to saved, but from saved, we become students. That's the next thing, and that's what we saw with Jesus. In chapter 5, after all these people had been touched by him and transformed by him physically, it says that Jesus sat down and his disciples came forward, and it's the first time we saw that word. And all disciple, mathitikos in the Greek, all it means is student. We become, we go from sin, from sinner to saved or saint, that's what the word means, set apart, to at that point then, to student. And that's where Jesus has been. But I remind you, Jesus is transitioning these fellas in verse 1 to verse 2 from, from saved, and we see that from student to sent. And that's what's going to happen with every one of you. I want to warn you, if you are in this thing the way you should be, you're on a trajectory. You got on the bus, and it wasn't like you just get off at the next stop because now you saved. You got on the bus to take it to the end. And the way that it works is we go from sinner to saved, and from saved to student, but from student, if you will, we become servants. And that's where he's going now. And he's taking these guys. Imagine if you spent all your time in school, and we know what this is like. We've been at school, and we've studied things to get the test passed. But we're like, I am never going to use this information ever in my life. Now, I want you to know that this week I had the privilege of taking the Life in the UK test. Nailed it. Thank you, Jesus. So pray for my wife and daughter who are going to take it in a week and a half. But there's information like, you know, and I don't want to diss it, but it's going to be it's really easy to. But it's like, why in the world do I need to know that? Now, there's some things that make sense to me. But things like these two women were cousins. That's really great. But they're dead. And they've been dead for hundreds of years. Anyways, you get the, but sooner or later you kind of go, okay, this is important to get this test. But once this test happens, I gotta free that RAM space for what's really important, like scripture. You know, I get this idea where it's like, oh, and then what happens is we do that here sometimes. We're like, okay, so I'm gonna learn about judges, so I know about Samson. Where am I gonna need that? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna study the Old Testament so I can learn about the sacrifices for what? I'm not becoming a rabbi. You know, I mean, you start kind of walking through this information, and, and if we think that way, then we're missing the point of why God wrote this autobiography. The point is, God's like, know me. And we can either try to know someone by experience, which by the way, will part of it is we experience life together, but the other is, it's like, and people are like, I wish I could read God's mind. And I'm like, you can. He wrote it in a book. You can read God's mind. It's right here. You're like, I just don't know who God is. And I've, I almost feel cheeky going, I do. 
How dare you think you know who God is? Oh, I do, because he actually was kind enough to let me know who he is. So when I read the Old Testament, what I read is I read God's rep sheet. I see where God's been, and I see how he's dealt with people, and I see how he doesn't bail on people who are just as stupid and rotten as I am. And it's very comforting to me. And I look at someone like Samson, and I think, wow, if God, if you were to give me that kind of strength, and I did that with it, I would rather not get it. And I realize some of the things I could chase after would be so stupid because I saw other people who got it without the presence of the Lord behind it. And I see what happens when it's misused. So please hear me. As we go through this, we want to go from, and, and I mean, think about where you are in that. I mean, are you at that place where you are confident you have said yes to Jesus and not just get out of hell free card? You know, that like, I'm just going to lay this down when I stand at the pearly gates with Peter. But rather, it's like, OK, I said yes to a relationship. And, then, and that's what saved me, because what, what, I, what I was dead in was a lack of relationship with God. And what I said yes to was a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the saved, but the saved. I want to become a student. I want to be the. I want to be in the student of God. I want to be. The, I want to be the valedictorian. I want to be the person who says, oh, "I know Him." And then from that, it's like, but the, all the information I learn is to prepare me to become more like Him, so that I could become the servant He's ordained me to be, just like He's ordaining you to be. So with that, Jesus then calls these guys. But notice in this, there's two things I want to bring up. There's This text is also, or this story in essence, is also mentioned in both Luke and in Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, it tells us, by the way, in verse, this is chapter 3, verse 14, same situation. It says that he adds this information, that he appointed 12, that they may be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. And to have power and heal sicknesses and cast out demons. And Mark, he makes really clear, was he emphasizes the servanthood of Jesus. He says, listen, 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 you got to get this. The first thing Jesus is calling you to is to him. Not just out. You need to recognize every Christian has a calling. And the calling you have will be bespoke to you. And the calling that you have this we will all have in common. You are called first to Jesus. In Luke, by the way, chapter 6, verse 12, it tells us in our countertext, it came to pass after those days that Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, then he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve whom he also appointed apostles. The twelve that Jesus chooses here is after... He has a relationship with these guys, I mind you. But he spent the entire night in prayer. Now, a side note, and we'll start digging into this quickly, is that, please hear me in this, there is a whole part of the body of Christ, their whole emphasis is on God's choosing. And, and the, it's like, that is their identity. Now, I'm, and look, at, there are people that's like, hey, do I believe God is sovereign? Absolutely. Do I believe God, that man has a choice? Absolutely. Nobody told me I had to pick a side. God's big enough to be both. And I like that. But people say, well, I'm just chosen. And I say, be careful. Because Jesus chose Judas Iscariot. Keep that in mind. And he spent all night in prayer before that. And I don't even think that was got to be the hard one. I just think, Jesus, can you imagine Jesus spending all night in prayer? And he's like, and the Lord's putting, the Father's putting all these people on his heart. And he's like, Peter, really? Of, the, of all of these people, I'm going to, that, that guy, really. 
And I, I just wonder if there was any of that or Jesus going, okay, Father. I mean, wouldn't it have been cool to just be a fly on the side of the mountain as Jesus had that prayer time to hear what that would have been like? So listen, as this is the case now, Jesus has come down. He's prayed all night. He's done an all-nighter. Could you imagine praying for two hours straight? Could you imagine praying for two hours straight at night? Now multiply that by how many hours people sleep in a place where there weren't lights unless you lit something. It's a lot of hours of Jesus just being alone with the Father and going, these are going to be 12 people that are going to change the world. Oh, Judas is going to change the world. He's part of it. And in that, he comes down and he goes, all right, you guys. And there's a pool. I want to remind you, there is a pool of people. There is a sea of people. And he's got to look at this sea of people and he's going to go, you and you and you and you. He's going to do that. Now, how would you feel to be the others? Dang it, I didn't make the cut. And it says this in verse 1 again. When he called his 12 disciples... To him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. And he gave them power over, uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and he gave them power of unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And it, now, the word power is an important word here. Um, there are certain words we use for power. There's a certain word like dunamis. We get the word dynamite or dynamic from it. Usually it's the ability to overcome resistance. It would be the word that you would use if you think about physical strength. There's another word for that, by the way. Uh, the word sterizo, like we get steroid from it, is the word that just means strength. So there's strength and then there's power to overcome if you want overcoming power. But this word, by the way, exousia, is a word that means you are actually granting, if you will, authority. It would be as if the queen were to grant you certain authority over a division or the... You know, the prime minister would have to ordain specific people as leaders over certain groups. They've been granted now, if you will, the authority over these areas. And what's interesting is the two areas that they were granted authority over. Do you realize they were granted authority over the supernatural and they were granted authority over the natural? It's that simple. He says, look it. Imagine the meeting he gets to have. For the first time, in essence, he's pulling these 12 guys and he's having a meeting now with a much smaller group of guys. Why? Because there's a harvest out there and he doesn't need masses for it at this point. He needs, he needs servants. And they say, like, guys, look at, I can't send you out without giving you authority. You need authority. And please understand something. God knows the balance between responsibility and authority. You have to have both. For every mission you've been given, you have to have the wherewithal to accomplish that or else someone's setting you up to fail. And people are like, well, but what if God sent me out? Well, then he'll give you the authority for it. Now, if he gives you the authority over the natural, be that to heal whatever, or over the supernatural, that's hell itself, what do you think you have to bring to the table that has to qualify? If you think God's going to give you authority over all the natural, but you're like, but I'm not naturally anything. God said, but I'm giving you authority over all the natural. Moses tried that when he tried to argue with God. God says, I'm sending you. And he's like, I don't speak well. Interesting, by the way, he writes the first worship song in Scripture. So I don't know whether that was kind of a stuttering rap song or what that was, but one way or another, he bursts into song. Isaiah tries saying that he was a man of a filthy mouth and a bad past, if you will. God takes a cold to his lips. Careful with that one. That's Isaiah 6. 
Jeremiah tries it and he tries to argue with God because he said he was so young. God's like, you really think that that... Imagine anything you throw at God, you're going to have one of two answers. Think about the God you're talking to. Either you're going to have the God that goes, which one of us is uninformed here? Do you really think somehow you're going to tell me something and God's going to go, oh, Adam, I really didn't realize that. I really should have taken a careful look. You're right. Go ahead and sit. I'm going to go and talk to Gabriel and a couple of the guys. I mean, if that is your God... How dangerous is that? That you're going to somehow... You ever, I mean, how many times do you try to give God the memo? Like someone saying, hey, by the way, there's this guy and he's blind right now. And I want you to lay hands on him because he's a chosen vessel of mine. And he's like, great, who is he? Well, his name is Saul of Tarshish. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. God, really? How did you miss that one? That guy's been killing us. And imagine trying to tell God something. Oh, God, you're aware that this bill's due. And God, you're aware this person's nuts on me now. And then God's like, whoa, what am I? I'm sorry, I've been really kind of distracted by Syria. I mean, or their elections or what. I mean, imagine that. And somehow in all of that, you're going to try to tell God something and it's going to change his mind? When God picked you, he already knew. And what you have to bring to the table, what God's, listen, listen, listen. What God's looking for is availability, not ability. Because if you have anything, God gave it to you anyways. And what he's looking for is your time, not your talent. Because if you have talent, he gave it to you anyways. And the whole point of it is, it's like God just wants to use you because he loves you to use you. And he takes these guys and he calls them and he goes, he calls them and he goes, Look, I'm going to give you the authority. I'm sending it out now on you so that nothing can stop you from doing what I've called you. I've given you the authority to do what I'm calling you to do here. So you want to argue with God? But God, I'm not. God's like, good. God's like, but I am. But God, I'm not very good at this. God's like, I know. That's the awesome part of this. But I am. And you can either focus on the you're not, or you can focus on the I am, but one of the two is going to go and going to win. The question is, wouldn't you rather just enjoy the ride? Wouldn't you rather say, you know what, Lord? How cool is it to be used? God's like, I'm going to make you do crazy stuff. And you're like, okay, it's not so cool to be used. But some of us, we did crazy stuff before we were saved. And now all of a sudden, we're like going to be like not crazy for God when we were crazy for the enemy? How weird is that? So hear me in this. Jesus is like, come here, guys. Come here, guys. Let's pray. And now that we've prayed... I'm going to give you power and send you out. And I'd start freaking out too. Here's the good thing. He never sends out here. Notice he doesn't send them out one by one. He sends them out two by two. So we remind each other. And we're going to see the brilliance of that here in a moment. He goes, I'm going to give you power over all of hell. I mean, Jesus would say when he speaks to Peter, ultimately, as he gives a confession about who Jesus is, he says, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, you need to realize what gates are. Has anyone ever tried to attack another person with a gate? They're not a weapon. All they are is an impediment. There's something to keep you in or keep you out. But if you're saved, you ain't in hell. Think about this, church. For him to say the gates of hell would not prevail, think about what that means. Either that means that you're on the inside and it can't stop you from getting out, or you're on the outside and it can't stop you from getting in. And if you're on the outside, why in the world would you want to go into hell? A reconnaissance mission, baby, that's why. When Jesus says, look it, 
When a strong man is there in his house and he's got all his armory and all of his stuff, he feels he's at peace. But when somebody stronger than him comes in and overcomes him, he takes his armor and he takes his spoils. And people, the church goes crazy with that. They say, oh, I'm just, I'm going to bind the enemy. Look at the enemy's already been bound. But you've watched that. It's like, you know, people are in a fight or something, and some guy goes down because someone big took him down, and some other guy kicks him at that point. It's like, you wouldn't have stood near him before that point. Now you're going to kick him. Really, that's what you want to focus. You're missing the point. So why does God win battles like this? For us to take the spoils. Well, what are the spoils? What's the valuables in the sight of God? You are. That's the point. So the reason we want to do that is because there are other people that we're, that are where we were. And go, hey, anyone want to come out? Because I'm here to, to get you out. Who wants to come out with me? And that's the point. So hear me on this. Jesus gives them power over hell, over all of the supernatural. So it isn't like, oh, no, I feel like this place is spooky or you can feel the oppression where you can, you know, you can sense, hey, maybe that's the case. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's nothing to fear. Turn to the person who wins these battles and say, hey, Lord, you want to take care of this one, too? We've got some spoils to take. And with that, then, he gives us our names. Twelve of them, two by two. And in these names, by the way, we'll go, we'll go quickly through it, but I want to ask in it, which of them do you think you are if you were going to be one of these? See which one you fit into. Now, we try to do something a little bit fun here because I'm always curious of these things. So we have our PowerPoint guys. And what I asked them to do was I asked them to put the name in, look for the first image that comes up for the saint, and we'll call and we'll put them up on the board for us so we can see the first thing that comes up for whatever the name is, saint so-and-so. So here are our first two. In the positions of one and two, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Well, well, I guess that's Andrew, the brother right there, I guess. Look at Simon. He looks so pensive. All right. Well, this is what we know for Simon. If we were to give Simon a name, might I suggest this? Simon the impetuous. That's the guy that runs headlong into things, says something that everyone's thinking, but we all have too much tact to say it. Simon was the guy, by the way, you remember, that he would be the, he's a man of extremes. On one side, he'll say, Lord, we've caught nothing. And then in the next minute, in the same chapter, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, he'll say, no, leave me, I'm a sinful man. It's the one when they're up on the mountain and Jesus is having a board meeting with Elijah and Moses. He says, hey, it's good that I'm here, good that we're here. Well, let's make some tents for you guys. It's the same one that says in Matthew 18, hey, when my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? And people are going, oh, I'm so glad he said it. But we would go, stupid, I can't believe he said that. But inside, we're like, boy, I'm glad he said that. And I realized he was not only the guy, though, that was quick to say the wrong thing, but he was the, quick to say the worst thing. When in Matthew 16, Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And they give the kind of play of the day. And he goes, well, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, way to go, Simon Peter, because clearly you have your spiritual radar on, because that is not something you could have got from this world. Only the Holy Spirit could tell you that. And he goes, well, now that you know that I'm the Messiah, you need to know my mission. I'm going to die. And he goes, far be it from you, Lord, 
for that to happen. In other words, you know what he's saying? No, Lord, you got me. Don't worry. Can you imagine God going, wow, that is a relief. I didn't know where I was going to find protection from. Thank you, Simon Peter. He was also the one when Jesus goes to wash his feet. In John 13, he says, you shall never wash my feet. He's the same one who said, in others, what he's saying is, no, Lord. He's the same one that in Matthew 26, when Jesus says, you're all going to fall away from me. He goes, no, Lord. Even if everybody else falls away, don't worry. I'm the rock. I'm not going to fall away. And he says, no, no, you're all going to look at it. No, 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 Lord. Even if, all, if I have to die for you, I'll do it. I genuinely believe he believed that. Is the same one, by the way, in Acts chapter 10, when the Lord lets down, if you will, a picnic of bug and beast buffet. He looks and he goes, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, Lord. How do you put those two words together? How do you say no and then Lord? That's like saying no boss. You can't really do that. But he's also the one, by the way, who's the first when he says, Lord, is that you command me to step out on the water? I don't know if anybody even thought of that other than him. He's also the one that would say, well, We've left everything for you. What do we have? Matthew 19. He's the same one that he'd say, well, where else or to whom else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. He's the same one that says, Lord, you know that I love you in John 21. And he's the first voice to step up in Acts chapter 2 to tell people to repent when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And I ask you, is that you? Are you the impetuous? Here's the good and the bad of it. My challenge to you is if you are the go for it guy, the Mr. Go for it, and there is room in the body of Christ for the go for it. But I see this. If the good is you're first to step in in faith, unreluctant, the bad is you could jump into nonsense. So stay in prayer and stay in constant readiness for what the Lord has for you and jump as he calls you to. Second, notice it says Andrew is brother. Andrew, by the way, as Peter would say, Peter the impetuous, I would say Andrew the introducer. Andrew was the one, by the way, we see that when he first finds Jesus, this is in John chapter 1, verse 40, the first thing he seems to do is go get his brother Andrew, or sorry, get his brother Simon Peter and bring him to him. He introduces Simon Peter to, his, to Jesus. He's also the one, by the way, when Jesus, by the way, is standing before 5,000 men and their families in John 6, that he says, hey, look, here's a boy with some barley loaves and some fish. He introduces the boy to Jesus. He's the same one that when the Greeks come in John 12 and they go and they find Philip and they're like, hey, we want to see Jesus. Philip seems to find Andrew. It seems like Andrew's the guy that's going to bring people in. And might I say, there's always a need for introducers. You know, the kind of person that when they're on fire for the Lord, they show up at church with the mangiest, motliest group of people. And he's like, I just want you to meet Jesus. And you go, praise the Lord for that guy or that girl. Hey, if you are the introducer, and might I say like this, kind of you're like the Mr. or Miss Big Party person. You know, some people, it's like, we're going to just have this little thing, but you invite this person. And the moment you invite this person, everybody's going to show up. Because now at this point, well, like, well, I can't not invite them. And if I invite them, we're going to kind of, it's like at the wedding again. Well, you know, okay, well, then I have to invite them. And if I have to invite them, well, then their grandmother has to show up. And, you know, and it's like by the time you're done, this little four-person soiree has turned into a full rager. Well, that's sort of the Mr. or Miss big party person. And that was Andrew. And isn't it beautiful that God calls people like that? He'll call the impetuous and he'll also call the introducers. And what I love is that he put the two together. Notice that they were the first team of two. Now, they are brothers, and I like that. 
But I think it's so brilliant of God to take the impetuous guy and stick him with the introducer so that the impetuous guy could challenge the introducer to introduce more people. And that the introducer can challenge the impetuous to make sure it's about people and not just about being crazy. Because impetuous people, we just, if you hear anything like that, we just, we'll jump out of something for the adrenaline of it. Then we'll figure out whether we should be landing. Next group. So mark these down for yourself and ask, is this me? Third one, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. The next couple. Let's take a look. Wow, look at that. Oh, look at how prayerful James looks. And look at those two. Okay, well, this is what we know about James. James and John are also have a nickname, and the nickname is Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Now, I don't know what kind of image that paints for you, but for me, that, that sort of paints the idea of a, of a world wrestler. A guy with a couple fingers taped. The talks like this. Let me tell you what. We're the sons of thunder. And I kind of get that. And it's interesting because they're also the sons of Zebedee. That's dad. So either mom's name is thunder or it's their personality. And then I kind of look at this and I realize this is what I see about James. James and John, by the way, they're the ones that say, Jesus, we want you to do what we ask. That's the way they say it in Mark 10. They're the same ones that in Luke 9, by the way, when they're trying to work through Samaria, interestingly enough, the group, the, the village doesn't let him in. And it's James, who I remind you, appears to be the older brother, who says, do you want us to call fire down on those guys? And might I just say that, if you will, James the intolerant. He has a strong sense of justice. And because of that, he is quick to let people know it when something doesn't seem right. And, and let me ask you, is that you? Are you the sort of, all right, you know, don't get around that person because, man, the moment that something doesn't seem right, you're going to hear it. Here's the good news. God uses people like this. Now, the good of it is, is that you're uncompromising. The bad of it is, you're uncompromising. The good is, you can be uncompromising in your standards and in your walk. The bad is, you could be uncompromising when it comes to meeting people at where they're at and the compassion that's necessary. Well, you know, what's interesting is who he sticks them with. Because remember, he doesn't send them out one by one, but two by two. With his brother, John. As where James, we might say, is the intolerant, we might say that John was the intimate. This is what we read about John. He was the one leaning on Jesus' bosom. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. By the way, it tells us not only in John 13, but in John 20, the same. And in John 21. John will have a unique experience because John will be the one guy that will not be martyred by murder. But he'll live the martyr of a long life. And what you see about John is he always seems to be, when Jesus is even in the courtyard, John is already there. He's the one who gets Peter in. When you read about them hearing about the empty tomb, John gets there first. Now, maybe because he's younger and quicker, but it's clear John is quick and he wants to get there. He seems to be the guy at the feet of Jesus. And is that you? Don't you love that he stuck the intolerant guy with the intimate guy? So the intimate guy could be like, let's never forget about the heart of Jesus. That it's about love. But you can get so crazy on the love thing, and I'm not trying to be mean, but you get so crazy on the love thing, you forget about the truth. James is a big truth person. And I remind you, Jesus says the Father is looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. He wants you fully involved. That would be the John. 
But he also wants it in truth, and that would be James, and he puts the two together. And maybe you're kind of one of those people where you are, you're all about the truth. Well, praise the Lord, there is space for you in the body of Christ to be used. And maybe you're one of those kind of people, all you want to do, and I would call him Mr. Prayer Closet. You know, the guy in is going to be, all he wants to do is be alone with Jesus the whole time. Here's the good and the bad. The good is you know the heart of God. The bad is be careful to, to not just isolate yourself, but to take that then and pour it out on others. What we'll find is John will, will get that much. So are you one of those? Peter, the impetuous, Andrew, the inviter, James, the intolerant, John, the intimate, the next two, Philip and Bartholomew. Wow. That's Bartholomew right there. Okay. Kind of has Daniel's beard going in. Okay. Philip was the problem solver. Philip was the guy that was the admin guy. As a matter of fact, what we'll find is that he's the guy, for instance, in John 6, that Jesus says, look at all these people, they're hungry. How are we going to feed them? And he's already has a quick answer. He's like, you know what? He's like, basically, a full year's salary is not going to be enough to give these guys even a crust. You can see that he's already run the numbers in his head. 200 denarii. But he says, worth of bread is not sufficient. He's also the one, I remind you, when the Greeks came to say, we want to see Jesus, you know what Philip did is he went and he found Andrew, the inviter, because he knows that's the guy you go to if that's the way it's going to get done. I love people like this because they're the admin people. And might I say it this way, Philip the industrious, he's the guy that's going to solve the problem. But you don't send him out by himself. You send him out with Bartholomew, which, by the way, we would believe to be the same guy as Nathaniel in the the Gospel of John. And why is that important? Because the guy that's the problem solver, and there's a good and a bad to it, the good is he gets stuff done. The bad is that sometimes people become a means to an end instead of the end. So what will happen is, you get, if you get just a bunch of Phillips and they're running a church, so to speak, then the church is the deal, and they're going to make sure they get as many people serving in children's ministry, or they're going to make sure that everything's handled, but they're not necessarily invested in. They're just making sure that the church is taken care of. Now, look at that was Paul at the beginning of his ministry. But you also put with someone like that a Bartholomew. And what I find about Bartholomew, which is interesting, is he was kind of a skeptic, if you will. He was the indisposed, the guy that wasn't quick to jump. He was the opposite of Peter. Now, could you imagine what would happen if God had put Peter and Bartholomew together? One would be jumping, the other would be pulling him back. They would have killed each other. But he doesn't. He takes the intellectual Philip that's industrious, and he puts him with the guy that's more reluctant so that they could spend more time in prayer. So the guy that wants to get the job done is going to be with a guy that's like, you know what, why don't we take a careful look at everything to make sure that we're doing it right? Because sometimes you can get so caught up in doing, getting things done, you don't do it right. You just get it done. And Bartholomew, what we read is, this was the guy, or Nathaniel, the guy that when, they, when, when Philip finds him, and by the way, these two are friends, when he finds him, he says, hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And it was this guy that says, hey, Nazareth? Can any good come out of there? He was skeptical. And when Jesus sees him as he's walking up, he does come, by the way, and that's what tells us the difference, please hear me, between a skeptic and a cynic. A skeptic is like, I need really good proof. A cynic, on the other hand, says, I don't care about the evidence. I've already made up my mind. When Nathaniel is invited, he is reluctant, but he goes. And that tells me he's skeptical. And Jesus says, now there is an Israelite in whom there's no guile. No deceit. And he's like, how do you know me? 
What has this guy told you about me? Well, how do you know me? He says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And the guy falls to his knees and says, you are the king of Israel. And I think, what happened under that fig tree? Well, clearly we don't know. But we do know this. Jesus knew that that's what it took for that skeptic to become a believer. And if you're genuinely skeptical, God knows what button to push. He knows how to get you where he needs to get you. I'm, glad, I'm very glad for that. So imagine putting these two guys together. They were already friends. One guy that's going to be the problem solver, if you will. You know, he's, and, and he's going to take that guy and he's going to be with the guy. It's like, okay, well, let's take a second look at the information before we make a decision. And that's our second. Now, let me ask you, which of these would you be? Would you be the indisposed like Bartholomew? Would you be the industrious like Philip? Or would you be the impetuous? Would you be the inviter? Would you be the intolerant? Or would you be the intimate like John? Well, we're, we're, well, we're running the corner here now. The next two. Notice who we get now. Thomas and Matthew. Why does Thomas have a spear? Well, maybe you'll see in a moment. I mean, I don't think, oh, wow, we need a disciple that can use a harpoon. Thomas is one of our favorites, right up there with Peter, because they're more known for their flaws than their accomplishments. Unless you're Catholic, then you may be way into Peter. But understand, we know Peter, of course, to be the guy that instantly has a a, a foot-sized mouth. What we know about Thomas is he's the guy that's insecure. And that's our I word here, Thomas the insecure. He was the guy, when we actually, the first time we hear him speak, it's only, only, by the way, in the Gospel of John, (laughs) the first time we hear him speak, Jesus is like, let's go back to Jerusalem. And this is what he says in John 11, 16. Yeah, let us also go with him that we might die with him. Now, I don't know how how you hear that. There's no way for me to hear that on my own head, like, yippee, let's all go and die with Jesus. Now, I just don't hear it that way. And the reason is, the other two times that I hear Thomas speak, it's always insecure. In John 14, Jesus says, and understand, they've given everything away. They've followed to follow Jesus. And Jesus goes, I'm going away now. That would freak me out. He's like, but don't worry, you know the way. And Thomas says, Lord... We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Thomas is he's like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. But of course, the, the one we're most familiar with is in John 20. Where Jesus shows up the first time, having resurrected from the dead, the same day of his resurrection. And all the disciples other than Judas Iscariot and Thomas are gone. I'm sorry, all the other ones are collected except those two. Judas Iscariot, of course, will ultimately have hung himself. Thomas, on the other hand, we don't read where in the world he is, but this is what happens when you miss church. Anyways, and it's like Jesus shows up, he shows himself resurrected, and everyone's there, and they're all totally elated about it, but Thomas wasn't there. So he comes back into the house, who knows where he was, and as he shows up, everyone is jonesing on the fact that Jesus showed up. Good news. But Thomas is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys are are mental. Unless I can stick my hand in the nail holes. Don't you realize how Jesus was killed? This is like no healing. There's, I mean, try to explain to Thomas the swooning thing. Because there are these guys that are at Cambridge and Oxford, and they're like, well, what Jesus really did is he sort of swooned. He didn't really die. That's why he faked his resurrection. But follow me on this for a moment so we can kind of pull this out. And I'm going to use you for a second. Can I do that? Thanks for being my example. We're not going to literally kill you. That's the good news. Okay. 
So when a guy is to be crucified, first of all, Jesus has already been, he's suffered what's called hematidrosis, which is what we saw in the garden where he sweat like drops of blood that takes his skin and makes it a sixth as thick and brittle, like what paper mache. So add that to him getting whipped, for instance. That means his skin is thinner. It's much more tender, if you will. And, and as that, they're going to flay his back. So, and, and, of course, they tied him like this around a post, stripped him. We won't do that for the sake of all people, including you involved, especially here it's cold. And so they're going to take all of this area and they're going to whip that, the blood loss from that alone. Then they're going to put a coat on him, what we read, a, a, you know, a king's coat. And then they're going to rip the coat off. What do you think happens when you put the coat on after that? It becomes, if you will, sort of an artificial skin. And then they rip it off. Then they're going to crucify him. They've already beat him with reeds that have lacerated his face. And as they do, they take this, they take this stipe, that's the tall piece, and the, the tibulum, that's the piece that he's got to carry here. And they take it and they nail one hand here. And then what they do is, this is while he's laying flat. Then they pull the other arm tight and nail it here. So when they prop him up, when you get to 10 degrees, the weight on each shoulder is two tons. This is why when you find a guy after they've been crucified, their arms are six inches longer than they were before because they've been ripped out of their sockets. Then they throw a nail. Try this with me. Cross one foot over the other. Well done. And they'll take that to where the heels would connect and they would run the nail through there. We know that because we actually have the, the Romans recycled, by the way. So they would use those same nails on the next guy, but one bent. So they had to leave it with the bone. And because of that, we have a record of where they put it in the foot. And then what would happen is, is that as you breathe, your rib cage has to elevate. But as your arms lose their circulation here, you start to sloop. And as you start to stoop down, your rib cage compresses until you suffocate. That's how you die. The longest recorded living victim, if you will, or a person who's lived the longest is 11 days hanging on a cross because your body doesn't want to suffocate. Now, the reason the Romans did this is so that you would have excruciating torment so that everyone else knew if you did what he did, this is what's going to happen to you. They would put a sign above it. It's called a titlos, like a title, and that would tell you this is what the guy did. Thanks, Adam. Now, here's the point. So take a guy, just take an ordinary healthy guy, run some nails through his hands, run some nails through his feet, rip his arms out of their sockets, fillet his back until it's completely lost, and let's just say after all of that, something amazing happened. He went into a coma. They threw him in the cool of a nice, you know, sterile tomb because we all know how sterile those are and somewhere in the middle of the night after they wrap him in this basically make him put a body cast on him because the aloes and the myrrh that they would create creates a cast on him out of linen so somewhere in all of this jesus comes to in the middle of the night there's a ten and a half ton stone at the front of this and he wakes up and he's like whoa what am i doing here and he pops out of this body cast his cocoon how does this guy walk to the, he's got to roll to the rock and then roll hard enough to knock over ten and a half ton stone so then he could show up to his guys, how again? And go, guys, I'm okay. And then these guys are willing to get tortured to death for it? That takes greater faith to me than a resurrection. But what we find here is that once Thomas does 
stick his hand in the nail holes. Jesus comes, he shows up again. Praise God, he didn't just say, Thomas, you're done then. You're fired. He shows up eight days later and he's like, okay, have at it, touch and feel. And Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. You deal with doubt. You're the kind that's insecure about your faith. There's still room for you in the body of Christ. Because here's the good news. Just like the skeptic, he knows how to make himself clear. So are you that? Are you Thomas the insecure? Do you know who he sticks Thomas with? Matthew. Why would that be so important? Matthew, if you will, is the invented. Matthew was the one guy of all the people that you would say, look at the biggest change. He was clearly a tax collector. Came, he was originally name was Levi or Levi. And he was a guy that Jesus transformed so clearly that the moment he calls him, he leaves his business, he leaves his future, he leaves his 401k, and he invites Jesus to his house just so that he can let everyone else know about him. And this is the cool thing. You know what God does with doubters? Is he sticks somebody that's such a miracle in their life that they're constantly reminding them that God transforms people, that he's alive. I love how he does that. And that's what he does here. He took somebody like the insecure Thomas and he took that guy and he stuck him next to Mr. Miracle. Now the challenge with the guy that's the doubter, if you will, the guy that's insecure in this, (coughs) is that you know how to take God's love personally when he reveals it. On the other side of it, make sure that you're still willing to let God move you when it comes time to take a step. Because usually what happens is you think you're being smart by being inactive. But for a Matthew... He's great is that he's a constant proof. I mean, you look and you're like, wow, you're not stoned. You're not pregnant. You're not sleeping around with people. You're not in fights. You're not crazy. Man, the the obvious change in your life, it's just evident. The moment that you walk in the room, it's evident. And you go, look, that's the good news. The, 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 The challenge, if you will, is to not build your identity from what you were, but let God continue to move you forward. Let him use your testimony anytime he wants to. But what happens is sometimes you still be like, I'm an ex-drug dealer. That was 35 years ago. Well, I mean, what you're saying is the biggest miracles God could do is at that moment, he still does great miracles. And I don't want you to rob yourself of the new miracles he wants to do just because you're still banking on the old ones. And we watch this with people. I can tell you, one of the biggest drug dealers in our county, back where we came from, and his wife are now the pastor uh, and his wife of one of the Calvary chapels that we have in our area. And when you look at her, you wouldn't know where they came from. But man, I tell you, we've walked through the whole process with them and watching God do all of that. I don't want to wait. Hey, by the way, check out where she is. And you know that because you know some of you we've sat with and talked about where you've come from. And it's like, look, it, it's, it's as God wants to use a testimony, let him. But as far as I'm concerned, that's God's job, not mine. I love the fact that people can look. You ever have someone look at you and go, really? You were that? I love watching that. Well, then, welcome to the world, Matthews. Welcome to how God calls you as a totally transformed individual. And chances are he's going to stick you with doubters, with people who are, who are insecure in their faith, because you are the one person they can't argue with. If they stuck him, by the way, figure it. If you took a doubter and you stuck him with kind of the intellectual, and this is the danger. You kind of got the, the, you know, and they're like, well, let me kind of bring up these dusty books and these kind of things. Hey, they could be cool for some people, but for a person doubting their faith, what they really need is evidence, not just a good argument. 
Because with a good, I mean, when it comes to an argument, hey, before I knew the Lord, I had no problem arguing, arguing with anyone. It was just sport for me. And it wasn't about the search for truth. It was just a competition like anything else I did. But when I saw how God changed lives, I couldn't argue with that. And we are, somehow the church has gotten caught in this trap where it's like, hey, everybody, what we really need to do is just argue, people. Can I warn you? Be evidence first and let God lead you. Okay, we're almost done. Here we go. Then we have these two guys. When was the last time you saw something amazing about James, the son of Alphaeus? Or better yet, Labaos. Have you ever even said the word Labaos? Try it once, just to say you've said it. Labaos, try it. Rolls off the tongue pretty naturally. Huh? Look at these guys. Oh, look at that beard. Oh, that's beautiful. It kind of looks like he ate a lemon. Well, <coughs> here's the really fun thing about these two guys. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labaos, whose surname is Thaddeus. We have nothing in Scripture about them other than their names. We didn't read him doing anything, although we know he did. Because ultimately we know that there's going to be some crazy stuff that happens with him. But please hear me in this. As where we've kind of looked at the impetuous and we've kind of looked at you know, the people who were intolerant and we've kind of looked at, you know, the problem solvers. And all that. Can I just say that there's two guys here we might just even call the invisible. And here's the thing. There are people who do things you never see that are so crucial. And there is always a need for this. It's the person who puts together a bulletin, or it's the person that helps set up this place. It's the person that prepares children's stuff. It's the person who makes you cool stuff to eat. It's the person who comes up with these cool little things and cards and things that they send. Now, what if that's you? What if you're the kind of person that's like, look, at all I want is not to get the spotlight. Well, then maybe you're one of these kind of guys. Don't you think it's cool you stuck the two of them together? So they each had a friend in this. Imagine if they stuck someone like this with Peter. You would have run him over. But what he did is they stuck, he's like, hey, you two, be friends with each other now. And go out and just do those things that other people don't see, but get the joy in that. Hey, and great things get done with them without applause. The scary thing is, is what the enemy often does with such people is get them to think about themselves in a way that they feel like they're overlooked for it. Hey, but in the end of it all, the applause has to come from him, not from people. Because if you want it from people, the moment you start digging there, you'll never dig deep enough to get enough. Finally, our last two guys. Simon the Canaanite who, by the way, it's important to recognize that the word that is spelled is actually different than a person from Canaan that would come, if we were to put it in American or Latin letters, if you will, this one comes with a K, is where the other would come with an X. The word comes from the word that means impassioned, or from Cana, not Canaan, but Cana, like kind of, Gal- you know, of Galilee. What we do read about him, by the way, in Luke 6.14, is that he is Simon the Zealot. He's a fiery character, and if you will, he's Simon the Impassioned. He's the guy that's like, yeah! And there's always one of those guys in a prayer group. You know it. It's like, let's all pray. And then Daniel starts, and Daniel's like, dear Lord. And someone's like, amen! And you can't even hear the guy pray because he's just like, just, Lord, we just want to. Daniel can be often much like, if you will, a James, son of Alpheus kind of character where he does a lot behind the scenes and he doesn't do it for applause. And then you've got those people, and it's just like the, the purple flaming monkey. And the moment something starts, things catch fire. I think it's interesting who he stuck him with. 
Now, a zealot, by the way, was somebody who hated Rome. Could you imagine if he stuck that guy with Matthew? They had killed each other. I remind you, Matthew used to work for Rome. He would not have seen the new Matthew. And that happens a lot with guys like this. That's a danger. You get so caught up in the fire, you can actually lose what God actually has in it. And they are intense. But he stuck him instead with Judas the imposter. And I think if anybody knew what it was like to say, come on, we really need to go for this. And then I see Judas the apostle, who, by the way, from the beginning pretended. But what we read, by the way, he was not a Christian that was taken like over by Satan. John makes clear he was a thief from the beginning. John, that what we read is Judas Iscariot was never one of the, he was one of the 12 by choosing, but he was never one of the 12 at heart. Don't let that be you. Last thing, and I want to pray, is in all of this, oh, hey, that is a good picture of Judas. Look at that. Do you see him? He's looking at you. Judas is looking. They were all imperfect. They were all infuriating. They were all otherwise impossible. They were all impeding and immature and ignorant. But you could take all of those things before the Lord, and you know why that doesn't bother him? Because he's infinite. That's why. And it tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. You see your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. <clears throat> but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world. And the, dis- the despised things God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to, to nothing the things which are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, just as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Well, he is quoting from one of my favorite texts, Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. I like it so much it's tattooed on my ankle. Thus says the Lord, well, at least the reference, let not the wise glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty in his might, let not the rich glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. It's like, why glory in your strength or in your brilliance or in your riches? Because you want something to really hoot about? Know me. Not just know about me. God's like, I want a relationship with you. I want you to go, yeah. And you know what happens when you have that kind of relationship? Everything changes. And this is what I want to end with as is, is we go to prayer. Is these guys, do you, did you figure out which one you think you're most like? Did you kind of go, okay, maybe that one? Let me tell you what happened to these guys in the end. Simon Peter, crucified upside down in Rome, 66, 67 A.D., is that you? Now, I'm not telling you that's your future, by the way. That's the good news. Andrew, crucified on an olive tree in Greece, 69 AD. James, the son of Zebedee, death by the sword. That's the one we have in Scripture. That's Acts 12, by the way, by Agrippa in Jerusalem. Uh, that's roughly, by the way, if you will, 44, 45 AD. John, again, died of old age, roughly about 100 AD, uh, in Ephesus, if you will. Philip, scourged, and then was crucified, 54 AD in, in Egypt, Heliopolis. Bartholomew, skinned alive and beheaded in India, 70 A.D. Thomas, remember that doubter 
the one that was insecure in his faith. Let me tell you about a guy that wouldn't back down. They continued to do things to him to try to get him to recant. They thrust him through with pine spears. When that wouldn't work, they burned him with hot plates. And when that wouldn't work, they just burned him alive altogether in India in 70 AD. Never would he recant. That guy knew once he saw, when he met the real Jesus and he saw him alive, there was no stopping that boy. Matthew, death by the sword. Then they stoned him while he was being crucified. Talk about insult to injury. You're being crucified and they're throwing rocks at you. That's in Ethiopia, 69 AD. James, the son of Elpheus, thrown down from the temple, then stoned, and then he bashed his brains in with a fuller's club, by the way. That ought to do it. That's 63 AD. That guy that we don't know much about, Labaius, Jude Thaddeus, who's beaten with sticks, then shot with arrows in Iran, 72 AD. Simon the Zealot, beaten and then crucified in Libya, Cyrene, in the west, if you will, the north coast of Africa, 74 AD. These, these guys, you really think that they saw a guy with holes in his feet, arms that had been ripped out of their socket that somehow knocked down a stone that was in its groove in front of a, a, a grave? And then you took these guys, one of these guys would have had to break. Thomas would have been my guess. Peter, he already had a history for it. But when you meet the real Jesus, things change. And let me ask you as we bring this to prayer, where are you at? I don't want anyone leaving here sinner alone. Saved, sure. Welcome to the journey. Student, welcome to the journey for that. Student, servant, welcome to the journey for that. Let's spend the rest of our life growing and walking with Jesus. Because the invitation is there for you now. And as we pray, let me ask you, are there any choices that need to be made in this? Lord, use me. I know I've thrown out all my arguments and excuses for why you couldn't use me, my past, my present. Well, then make the changes that are necessary and then use me. If you could use these numbskulls, I think I qualify. And I'd say to that, hallelujah. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of your word here in this cool Valentine's Day 2016 Here we are in a church where there was a time before this where people never had any heat and they sat in here and clumped into each other just to to keep each other from frostbite. And, and, And I know for us, this is cold. But Lord, we recognize you brought us into this room today to do so much more than get information. But Lord, we are praying just like the disciples that became apostles. And when we're praying is, God, if we recognize if we're seeking you because you're the Lord of the harvest, well, then ultimately we're volunteering to be a part of the solution. So, Lord, you know where we're at in this particular journey right now. And I thank you, Lord. This isn't just about making a sale. This is about starting a relationship and developing that relationship and making it more intimate and fruitful. And I pray today for us here in this room. Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us so that we would not be stagnant. You call it a Christian walk, not a Christian stance. We would walk with you and be transformed. So, in this room right now, Lord, work with every person who, is, who knows they're saved, but, they have not, they, but they've been negligent in the area of being your student. And for those that are being students but have, but have been negligent in the area of letting you take that information and put feet on it, Lord, move us forward to that place where we could serve. And I thank you, Lord, for, as I think about the people who do serve here, often so much like the Labeoses, Lord, who 
they just, they, you just don't see the work they do, but it's so meaningful. But Lord, while your Holy Spirit is working on each of us in that, if there is anyone at all within the sound of this voice who has not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, who knows today that they're entering into a covenant and not just a contract, where a relationship is fundamental, and today by your Holy Spirit you tell them, you need to deal with this, you need to get this resolved and sorted right now, then right now within the sound of this voice I'm going to pray a, voice, a, pray a prayer and I ask you to listen and if you agree... I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, yes, that's my prayer now. Let that be so. I do, if you will. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, just like you've said, all men are sinners. That includes me. And I recognize this isn't about me trying to make myself better. I'm spiritually dead is what you say in Scripture. And only you, the God of life, can give life. And you so love me. You paid the price for all of my sin on the cross. And as you did, my price was paid. And as you rose again, you offer me a new life, one now with an intimate relationship with you. But that is the choice you lay before me. And so I say yes. Yes to Jesus as my ransom, my payment at the cross, and yes to Jesus as my Lord and reinventor at the resurrection. Make Put me into the body and make me that part of the team that you want to make me. Develop me in such a way so that you would use me as a part of this solution. Give me those eyes of compassion. Let me see the harvest and then send me to it. And Lord, no matter what it is you are making me, I know it is so that others could be transformed and that you would be glorified. But first and foremost, you call me to you. And so I say yes, declaring Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Have me now. I want to be confident that I have said yes, and today I say yes. So here I am, Father in heaven. I'm yours, in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer today, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. You've heard our choices. And again, though we look at the outside, you know the heart. So Lord, now... Turn us into people. Grow us, Lord, from, from sinner to saved, from saved to student, from student to sent. Servant, as you call us to. Use us now, we pray. Transform London. God, we pray for the soul of this city, and we pray you would use us to be a part of the solution. We follow you into the battle to take the spoils, Lord. Thank you for conquering the strong man. Thank you, Lord, for wiping away the handwriting requirements. Thank you for completely exonerating our guilt. And thank you, Lord, for making us whole. So, Lord, we follow you to the spoils. So get us excited about that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.